trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Once again, we are here to revel in wrong think. Therefore, it's appropriate that my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com would be joining me. Eric, how are you today? I'm good, Brian, and let's wheel that around and characterize ourselves as right thinkers, just as we're still sane in a country gone crazy. Yeah, it's and you mentioned this as we were getting ready to go on the air here. Um, we're in a really weird place right now. I'm feeling optimistic because I'm seeing some things start to change. Uh, some of the big mask enforcer uh, you know, stores or store chains mm-hmm. have actually backed off now, and so it, it feels like there's there's a potential return to normalcy but you pointed out it's actually more like we're in a trough in between waves. Let's talk about that. Yeah, that's my sense of things. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I hope that I've just been rendered kind of gun-shy given everything that's happened over the last year or so, but my spider sense tells me that all that's happened is that the symptoms of mass hysteria have been temporarily suppressed uh, by the availability of this vaccine, and I'm going to put it in finger air quotes And I think a lot of the faces that you're seeing now are of people who feel safe for the moment um, because they've been needled. And my worry is that come fall and people start getting sick again, including people who are are, who have been vaccinated, who are already some of them becoming sick. uh, This whole thing is going to reboot. And it's possible in my mind that not only will it reboot, but it will double down and be even more hysterical this time around. I hope not. But that's my fear. No, I think those fears are actually well-founded, given what we saw happen over the last 15 months or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and given, uh, I think as of today, since December, uh, and this is the CDC's number, this is what's admitted to, something on the order of 4,000 people in this country have died after having gotten the vaccine, including a number of previously healthy children. Now, that's an astounding thing. If you factor that out over the remainder of this year, we could well see uh, 10,000 people or more who've died as a result of, arguably, having had this vaccine, which in normal times would be considered an absolute catastrophe. And in my opinion, it's far more a catastrophe than the Rona because, again, these people, by and large, are people who who were healthy. They weren't sick, but they were made not healthy by having been needled. Whereas the Rona, uh, as anybody who's looked into this should know, constituted a threat only to people who were already quite you know, elderly or, or sick or a combination of that. And for people who weren't in those two categories, was, you know, it was just like a normal seasonal bug and nothing particularly to be, to be agitated about. I don't think a person has to be particularly conspiracy-minded to recognize how the pandemic and the accompanying fear and uncertainty that came with it have been exploited uh, you know, to to the nth degree by power yeah. seekers and opportunists. Uh, no question. You know, if if you have a memory that's more enduring than that of a goldfish, you can see these patterns and how they come in cycles and waves. We had in recent history, we had 9/11, and that uh, that was ramped up and it and it it held in force for a while until people kind of got bored with it. 
And then you had to have a new crisis, and the new crisis was sort of, remember the beheadings, the Islamic terrorists, the jihadis, oh, yeah. and all of that? Uh, and then, strangely enough, that went away. And now we're in the middle of this, uh, as I put it, sickness psychosis, which is far more threatening than anything that's come before because it's literally invisible. You know, it's just, it's sort of the, the, uh, the almost definition of a mindless fear. It's like a child who's scared of the boogeyman and a kid who's been effectively traumatized by that kind of fear can only be disabused of that fear by very, very extensive therapy. And now we've got a case of, you know, half, two-thirds of the country having been turned into what amounts to an emotionally damaged 10-year-old who's terrified of the boogeyman and won't come out from under the bed. Yeah, it's funny to see how many people have actually um, protested or, or registered disapproval, you know, that, that the mask mandates are lifting. And it's because mm-hmm. they, they've been conditioned to be more comfortable wearing the mask. And I, I see this particularly in high population areas. You know, the, the masks are still pretty ubiquitous. Even when people don't have to wear them, you'll see a lot of people just reflexively put it on. Well, it's what you do. And, you know, and some people, uh, you know, David Hogg, for instance, comes right mm-hmm. out and says, well, I'm wearing a mask because I don't want to be mistaken for a conservative. It's like, really? Has it been right. that politicized? Wow. It has, it's been that politicized. And also there is, there is this undertow that's quite ominous of retribution and vengefulness. We were talking off the air a little bit about uh, President Biden saying, uh, threatening this morning, that people who haven't received the needle will get their just desserts or be punished. I, I can't remember his exact verbiage, but it was essentially a they'll threat. They'll pay the price. And they'll pay the price. And you mentioned that Hillary said essentially the same thing, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, you want your life back? Get the shot. Right. <laughs> Right, and that that ought to be you know that really ought to scare people when you when you step back step back from that and examine it. These people are saying that unless you submit to a medical procedure that they deem necessary, you'll be punished. That's the kind of thing that happens in totalitarian societies. That's not something that should happen in a in a free society or anything that even makes a pretense of being a free society. Let's bring it back to the retailers, though. I'm curious about your take on will vaccination, you know, in other words, proof of vaccination, is that going to become the passport, so to speak, that will allow you to shop here or to shop there? Do you see that being an issue as we move forward? You know, I think it all comes down to grubby money, frankly. I think that if these big retailers think that the majority of their customers will demand it, then they will probably attempt to enforce it. And there's also an issue of legal liability. I know a lot of these these retailers were um, kind of pressed into enforcing the diaper decrees, not so much by the edicts of the Gesundheitsführers, but by worries from their legal department that, you know, if some Corona Karen or Ken uh, accuses us of having gotten them sick because we didn't make everybody wear a face diaper, uh, we're going to have to deal with that and spend a fortune on legal bills and so on. So let's just go ahead and make everybody uh, put the diaper on or at least have the sign on the door so we can say, look, we did our due diligence. And I think the same sort of thing will probably happen with regard to these vaccines. They, they will be concerned that somebody will go into their store and then later on they'll claim, oh, I got sick because you permitted people to get into your store who were spreaders of sickness because you didn't demand that they show proof of having been vaccinated. Yeah, there are some interesting possibilities, and, and some of them are, are not very palatable. You know, I just... well and. They're, they're, the, the scary thing to me about it, and this goes back all the way to the beginning of this, is that it's all predicated on assertions, not on facts. How do you prove or how do you establish on a fa- in a factual way that if you walked into a store, you shopped around, and you know, a week later, a couple of days later, you come down with something? 
how do you establish factually a correlation? You might suspect that, you know, I, I was in the presence of somebody who had some kind of an illness, but you can't prove it. So how do you hold people in a justifiable sense liable for something that can't be proved that's just on the basis of an assertion? How is it that you can force somebody who's perfectly healthy, has absolutely no signs of being sick, to put on a face diaper because they might be sick? You see where all of this ties together, and it's all very dangerous because it, it just completely throws in the trash the old-fashioned idea that you have to actually establish that somebody did something before you can hold them accountable for something. No, that's that's a great point. I just can't get over how um, the CDC, among others, you know, some government officials, are now acting like, hey, you know, thanks to us, we've restored y- your freedoms. You, you know, now you don't have mm-hmm. to wear the mask if you're vaccinated and so forth. They act like... Sure. They were the ones who were magnanimous enough to uh, to see the light and to to graciously give us back our freedoms. Where in reality, you and I both know, people simply got sick of playing along with the charade and said, "Enough, right. we're we're going to reclaim right. our lives." And and then here come the CDC people, Doctor Fauci. Oh, a parade! I'll jump in front of it and start marching and pretend like it's for me. Sure. Well, there's also a wife beater aspect to this. Uh, you know, a trauma conditioning aspect to this. Um, you know, you beat the uh, spouse up, she gets you the turkey pot pie, and then she doesn't get beaten for now. You know, it's, it's, there's a little bit of carrot and stick. Oh, if you do this, you'll get a reward. But somehow we need to remember that none of this is reasonable. None of this is normal. And we have to somehow figure out a way to go back to before all of this, to the before time, to use the, the Mad Max Road Warrior language I like to throw in every now and then. <laughs> Well, and, and yeah, Fauci is Fauci's a real creep. And I must, I, I want to take a moment to thank Dr. Rand Paul, who actually is a real doctor, unlike the paper doctor that Fauci poses as, uh, who has been taking him to task over his deliberate incitement of mass hysteria and the way he's been using this for his political gain publicly. Um, Dr. Paul, whatever your politics are, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, the man has done really solid work and deserves praise for it. Yeah, you can take it as a badge of honor that uh, he's often criticized by the press. How dare he question yep. Dr. Fauci? Eric, we're coming up on the break here. When we come yep. back, though, since you mentioned Mad Max, we're going to yep. talk about gasoline shortages and some of the economic considerations of what lies okay. ahead. Yep. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And Eric, uh, since since we talk about uh, not just freedom issues, but automotive issues... Uh, the lines kind of crossed over this last week or so with a little mm-hmm. pipeline shut down, gasoline shortage. Yep. Is it wrong that the first thing I thought was, okay, how manufactured might this crisis be? I'm a really suspicious yep. person these days. Well, whether it was manufactured or not, I think it makes me uneasy because it gave us a prequel of what may be to come and which I think is intended to become. And I say intended because we have the fact that President Biden... Uh, among other things, closed down a, a, another pipeline, 
which was vital to getting gasoline and diesel to us, has rescinded government leases um, to oil companies that were trying to get energy for us and which will no longer be able to. So I think that uh, even though this particular gas spike was a temporary thing, um, it's going to be a more permanent thing, and it almost has to be uh, in terms of politics because Biden and AOC and all of these people on the left who want their Green New Deal know that it's a non-starter until they can make gas and diesel uh, at least as expensive as their green energies, things like uh, electricity, wind turbines, and all of that stuff. Uh, nobody is going to go out and buy a $50,000 electric car until they're forced to pay 6 or $7 a gallon for, to, to fuel up their, their non-electric car. Amazing. And I can't remember which administration official it was. I saw uh, just the other day a quote from, from uh, I can't remember who it was, one of the Biden administration officials, and she was just making the comment of, well, if the gas prices are getting to be too much, go buy an electric car. It was, it yep. was one of those let-them-eat-cake moments. Uh, I don't even think she yep. realized how Marie Antoinette she was being. Well, they don't. You know, these people, these high officials, you know, I used to live in northern Virginia, which is populated by government officials. These people make a tremendous amount of money. I think the average American family that's not employed by the government has a, an annual family income of around $50,000. I think that's what the figure is. And you couldn't live in northern Virginia on $50,000 a year unless you lived under the key bridge in a van. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these people are making six-figure salaries and then some. So, of course, to them, Spending forty or fifty thousand dollars on an electric car is, is, as you say, let them eat cake. They don't, you know, they they, don't, they they're so out of touch and contemptuous, frankly, of the concerns of average people, and that too is politically dangerous. Even though they don't see it, they don't realize just how elitist and arrogant they come off when they say things like that. You recently had written a, a column about the alternatives were denied. Yeah. As, as it pertains to, to electric cars. Let's talk about some of those alternatives. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about that and decided to do an article about it. Now, if we had a free market, let's just do a thought experiment where the government wasn't favoring any particular type of car or any particular car manufacturer, and uh, car companies were free to develop, design, and offer for sale all kinds of different vehicles. I think it's very probable that some company would have developed a lightweight, affordable electric car that didn't attempt to do the things that non-electric cars can do, specifically be capable of going several hundred miles on the highway at 75 or 80 miles an hour and be refueled. However, electric cars are really good in slow-speed stop-and-go driving, and there's no reason you couldn't make one uh, that was suited to that purpose that wasn't even trying to get out on the highway. But if you needed a car that would just take you five miles down the road or ten miles down the road and back to your job and back, and that's it, uh, as a commuter car, uh, something like that could be made and sold for probably around 10000 bucks, which would make it an actually better alternative than a non-electric economy car, the least expensive of which, of which cost around fourteen or 15000 bucks. But because of the government, because we don't have a free market, we have $40,000 electric cars that can't compete with $14,000 non-electric cars. Well, and, and just looking at those times when the electrical grid, um, you know, may be down. And, and I'm not talking about some mm-hmm. widespread disaster, but look at what happened in Texas earlier this year. Yeah. You know, that was, uh, it would have sucked to have an electric car at that time and realize, okay, I can't fuel up even if I want to. Sure, and it will suck even more if by some, I think, impossible miracle, 
millions of electric cars uh, suddenly are plugging into the grid simultaneously. People don't understand electricity by and large. They don't realize what it takes to infuse current into an electric car battery. We're talking about massive voltages. The, the fast chargers that you hear about, these are not home chargers. These fast chargers operate on 480 volts of direct current. No house has that kind of power. Uh, so you're going to have to drive somewhere to the fast charger, the so-called fast charger, where you will sit and wait for a minimum of 30 minutes to 45 minutes if you're first in line. Think about how that's going to alter your, your day, your week, uh, and how you get around. No, it's, it's a very real challenge. Um, now, let's, let's talk about automotive things for just a moment. And, and aside from the electric vehicles, let's talk about what's the most, uh, what's the most fascinating thing you have reviewed of late uh, on your uh, website, ericpetersautos.com. Well, you know, I, uh, we, we live per Tolstoy uh, in the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, this week I'm driving the new Jeep Wrangler Rubicon 392. And 392 is a reference to the 6.4-liter V8 uh, that's under his hood. This thing makes 470 horsepower. Now, Whoa. to put that in some context, the last time that Jeep offered a V8 engine in the Wrangler was back when Ronald Reagan was president. And it was a 304 V8, and it made, this is not a typo, 125 horsepower. Wow. Now, that's, you know, so that's the good thing. The bad thing is that back in those days, almost anybody could afford to buy a V8 Wrangler. If you had a job, you could buy a V8 Wrangler. Today, to get a V8 Wrangler, it costs $73,000, and that means that almost nobody can afford to buy the 392 Wrangler, and that's the tragedy of it. And the reason they can't afford it is not because of Jeep. There's nothing inherently expensive about a V8 engine or a Jeep. It's because of the government. It's because of all of the regulatory flapdoodle that has made vehicles, especially those kinds of vehicles, so stupendously expensive and made them into these limited production, low-volume niche vehicles that only the rich can afford. So you can thank Uncle Sam for that. Well, that's kind of a bummer because that's a good-looking rig. I'm just looking at the article yeah, on is. your website, and that, it's a, yep. that's a really sharp-looking Jeep. A, a really capable Jeep, too. It's, ast- it's astounding. You know, you've got a Jeep, mind you, a Jeep on 33-inch tires that does 0 to 60 in 4.5 seconds. Whew. I can hear the fossil fuel industry applauding somewhere back in the distance. Yeah, well, you know what? We should applaud the fossil fuel industry. They, and, and again, I, you know, I am very ambivalent about the orange man, as you know, and as we've talked about, and particularly with regard to this whole sickness cult that he did nothing about. I will say, however, that under his reign, uh, we got back to the point of being energy independent in this country. America was no longer uh, suffering under the chokehold of OPEC and these other regimes and we were on the verge of becoming a net exporter of oil, and gasoline only cost about two bucks a gallon, if you can remember those halcyon days of two years ago. And here we are now with gas during the latest pipeline thing here in Virginia. It was going for seven bucks a gallon, and even you know, not counting price gouging, it's three bucks a gallon. So we're paying through the nose for all of this, and it's just it's a tragedy because there's no reason for it. There's plenty of oil, there's plenty of gas, plenty of propane. It's just being made artificially expensive through the good offices of people like Joe Biden. Yep, very discouraging to see that cost go up and and watching it translate into the cost of everything else that mm-hmm. is sitting on the store shelves. Yeah, Eric, you and I were talking a little bit off the air about that and then I went to Lowe's the other day to pick up a few things and a 2x4x8, a 2x4 was going for 10 bucks. 
Well, plywood is uh, is getting uh, outrageously expensive. A nice standard sheet of plywood, uh, last I heard, was running about ninety five bucks. Yeah, I you know I wonder again as you and I talked about a little bit off the air how anybody is still in the building trades. Meaning, you know, who who can afford to buy the result of the building trades? What does it cost to put up a house now? And who can afford to buy that house? I think we are riding the wave of another thing right now that's going to crash because it's not sustainable. You cannot. What's that going to factor out to when 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 sheathing when a four by eight sheet costs sixty, eighty, ninety bucks? You know, a house that would have cost one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year ago is now a three hundred thousand dollar house. Who can afford that? Well, I'm grateful there are guys like you keeping an eye on this and helping us make sense. Eric Peters from epautos.com, thanks again for joining me for a little session of Wrong Think. Oh, you bet, Brian. Looking forward to our next one. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know I sound like a broken record when I say this, but the purpose of programs like this one is to encourage you to take ownership of your worldview. And I'm guessing you wouldn't even have clicked play or you wouldn't even have sought this out if at some level you weren't concerned that uh, maybe someone somewhere is trying to mislead you or otherwise manipulate you, hack your mind through fear into uh, thinking or behaving in certain ways. Does that sound too conspiratorial? Okay, if it, if it does, I can't help it. It's, I, I think it's the reality of the time that we live in. And I was very pleased to come across uh, what's, what's billed as a primer for the propagandized. This is from Margaret Anna Alice. And it's possibly the most clear and thorough breakdown of all the different ways that our minds can be hacked through the use of fear. So I thought I would share some excerpts with you. Um, it starts with a quote from George Orwell. And I guess that's about as appropriate as it gets. Totalitarianism, if not fought against, could triumph anywhere. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that uh, George Orwell is the only authority we should ever, you know, consult on such matters, but the guy knew what he was talking about. And in this case, uh, Margaret Anna Alice says, The noose is dangling gently around our necks. Every day they cinch it tighter. And she says, by the time we realize it's strangling us, it will be too late. Those who gradually and gleefully sacrifice their freedoms, their autonomy, their individuality, their livelihoods, and their relationships on the altar of the common good have forgotten this is the pattern followed by every totalitarian regime in history. She says, everyone wonders how ordinary Germans could have been manipulated to participate or stand dumbstruck while their government was transformed into a genocidal juggernaut. But she says, this is how. Read Sebastian Hafner's Defying Hitler memoir to see how this can happen anywhere, including here. By the way, she has a lot of great recommended reading. So I'm going to encourage you, check out the show notes, click on the link, and, and look at some of the different sources. I would add to this, if you want to really understand, how did the German people find themselves in the situation they did? Read Milton Myers, M-A-Y-E-R, Milton Myers, They Thought They Were Free. 
the Germans, 1933 to 1945. I'm going to warn you, though, if you don't have a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach by the time you finish reading it, you're, you're not paying close enough attention. Because the parallels between what their society was willing to accept and what we are currently willing to accept as a society are very eye-opening, to put it mildly. In the article here, it says, Everyone wonders how Russians could have permitted and even zealously reported fellow citizens for imprisonment and execution under Article 58, the penal code invented to incarcerate anyone who dared express the slightest whisper of noncompliance under Stalin's homicidal state. This is how. She says, Read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's meticulously documented the Gulag Archipelago to witness this progression of authoritarian lunacy. Next, she says, Everyone wonders how Hutus could have suddenly started axing their Tutsi neighbors to death after being inundated with waves of anti-Tutsi propaganda from radio television Libre de Mil Colinis. And she invites you to read Philip Gorovich's We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families. Stories from Rwanda. And the list goes on and on and on. <clears throat> from Machiavelli's The Prince to Etienne Delaboite's The Politics of Obedience, The Discourse of Voluntary Servitude, to Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent, an accompanying documentary, to the BBC's The Century of the Self. Mechanisms of mass self-control, mass control rather, have been chronicled for millennia. George Orwell wrote, As far as the mass of people go, the extraordinary swings of opinion which occur nowadays, the emotions which can be turned on and off like a tap, are the result of newspaper and radio hypnosis. End quote. And here the author says, Can you imagine what master propagandist Edward Bernays would, could have done <clears throat> or would have done with access to today's mainstream media conglomerate combined with the global surveillance infrastructure of big tech? And she says, and you really think that's not happening now? With another century of psychological, neurological, and technological research under their belts? The present ability to curate reality and coerce obedience is unprecedented. Far beyond what Orwell envisioned in 1984, what Bradbury thought of in Fahrenheit 451, Huxley in Brave New World, and Burgess in A Clockwork Orange. A textbook, a textbook example of problem-reaction-solution. The current tsunami of worldwide hysteria is the latest and, most, and potentially most threatening example of mass control in history. Now, the recipe is simple. You take a naturally occurring phenomenon, say a seasonal virus, and exaggerate its threat far beyond every imagining. Despite exhaustive evidence to the contrary, suppress, silence, ostracize, and demonize every individual who dares present facts that expose the false mononarrative. Whip up a witch's brew of anger, envy, and most importantly, fear, escalating emotions to a boil so as to short-circuit our faculties of reason rather, and logic. Isolate us from one another. Supplant real-world interactions with virtual feuds. Label nonconformists as a threat to the group and pump the public with disinformation designed to confuse and atomize. In essence, foster a cult-like mentality that shuts down thought to guarantee assent. She points out how they cultivate and wield our cognitive biases, especially in-group bias, conformity bias, and authority bias against us in a comprehensive divide-and-conquer policy that keeps us too busy squabbling amongst each other 
to recognize and unite against those corralling us into a matrix-like collective delusion that enables the powerful to extract our resources for their gain. This ideological mass psychosis is religion, not science. If this were about science, the media, pharmaceutical, big tech complex would not be memory-holing every dissenting voice, vilifying every thought criminal, and censoring every legitimate inquiry in quest of the truth. Mark Twain said, It's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. He also said, In religion and politics, people's beliefs and convictions are in almost every case gotten at second hand and without examination, from authorities who have not themselves examined the questions at issue, but have taken them at second hand from other non-examiners, whose opinions about them were not worth a brass farthing. End quote. So the next time you're watching the news, reading a social media post, listening to a friend repeat a scripted talking point, pay attention. Learn to identify the earmarks of propaganda, the clickbait used to trigger your emotions, the mechanisms employed to engineer your cognitive biases. Don't let pride prevent you from seeing and admitting the emperor is naked. We are losing our last sliver of opportunity to resist authoritarianism. And by the way, this is not a partisan issue. She says, those who wish to control us have made made it such because disunited lemmings are easier to steer than independent, critical thinkers. This is a human issue. This is about crushing the middle class, the backbone of a democratic republic, and transferring trillions from the middle and lower classes to the ruling plutocracy. This is about demolishing the foundations of a free society and building it back not better, but better controlled. And she says, I will close by recommending a series of illuminating videos on menticide. First time I've heard this word. The systematic effort to undermine and destroy a person's values and beliefs and to induce radically different ideas throughout history. This is by by the Academy of Ideas. And this analysis of mass psychosis is nonpartisan and of value to every thinking human being. So these videos include one on, Is Mass Psychosis the Greatest Threat to Humanity? The Mass Psychosis and Demons of Dostoevsky. The Manufacturing of a Mass Psychosis. Can Sanity Return to an Insane World? By the way, I haven't had a chance to watch these videos, but I'm going to make the time to do it. Because I believe it's, it's worth uh, arming yourself intellectually, philosophically, to, to understand and recognize when your chains are being pulled. So Margaret Anna Alice concludes by saying, look, dare to question, dare to disbelieve, dare to defy ideology in favor of science while you still can. She's got a point here. And I understand, this. to some people, this sounds like a really radical thing to do. Whoa, what do you mean, dare, defy, disbelieve, what, question? But if you're a person who's serious about maintaining your autonomy, maintaining your conscience, and yes, your freedom and your liberty along with those things, this is the price you have to be willing to pay. You have to be willing to march out of step with everybody else who's marching in lockstep to the beat of the same drum, and it's hard. And sometimes it's a little bit scary and a little bit lonely. As someone who has done his best to walk the walk for some time now, I can only tell you, yeah, it's hard, but it's worth it. Thanks again for being part of our audience of wrong thinkers. We'll be back in just a moment.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, you can always find the show notes for a given day by going to thebrianheidshow.com. I provide links in those show notes to every article that I mention, every guest that I have. I have links to their websites, their content, and I would urge you take take the time to, to get acquainted with them. You can also subscribe to the podcast there at the show notes, and if you choose, become a patron or regular monthly supporter of this program. So just a couple other ones I wanted to touch on before our, our show's over for this hour. Um, this was an article I found from the Issues and Insights editorial board. It's This is their editorial and they have a very thought-provoking take on how our, our once stiff national spine is starting to look pretty broken these days. The evidence that they offer, by the way, and it's pretty convincing to me, is that a sizable portion of the populace is actually disappointed that the mask mandates are being lifted. Here's what Issues and Insights editorial board said. They said a number of retail chains announced last week they're not requiring fully vaccinated customers to wear masks in their stores. Now, not everyone was happy to hear the liberating news, however. Our country, once a bulwark of the strong and daring, is becoming a land of the faint-hearted. Minutes after The Hill tweeted Friday that Trader Joe's was no longer demanding that its customers self-suffocate, at least those who've been fully vaccinated, the scolds and skittish school marms took their shots before running to hide under their beds. Not good, said one, without explaining why it's not good. Other responses included, I've only been there once, and it looks like it will be my only time for a while, and I will not be going to Trader Joe's for a long time. Many concurred. They'll avoid Trader Joe's. One commenter says he doesn't know if he'll ever go back again. Issues and Insights editorial board says all that was missing was Joe Biden calling Trader Joe's executives Neanderthals and Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank claiming the stores are America's number one death destination. Now, certainly everyone is free to express their opinions about masks. And everyone's also free to decide to shop elsewhere if they don't like Trader Joe's policy. But the response concerns us. Will enough nervous Nancys and timorous Tims, or Toms rather, boycott Trader Joe's, Walmart, Costco, and others that have liberalized their mask policies to force the companies to backtrack on their decisions, which will help restore the humanity and dignity that was ripped away by the mask rules? Will they actively picket in front of stores in an effort to bully executives into yielding to their neuroses, fixations, and superstitions? More than that, though, they say we are troubled by what this tells us about what America has become. The coronavirus pandemic revealed in stark terms a truth about this country that many of us have long suspected. We've grown soft, fearful, perpetually nagging, and paralyzed by safetyism. Our prosperity has allowed many of us to feed our eccentricities and disorders, taking us down dark alleys and through doors that lead to grand halls of odd behavior. For example, one late pop star's wealth enabled him to create a fantasy world around his life and to change his appearance in bizarre ways. Had his life been an exercise in basic subsistence, he would not have been able to afford to accommodate the quirks of his personalities. <clears throat> of his personality, sorry. Dr. Hyde is not making a diagnosis here. They say just to see how to see just how deep this nation has plunged into a rancid broth of fear. Look at this Stat Harris poll taken after last fall's election. It found that 75% of the public supported the idea of Joe Biden mandating mask wearing. 
while two-thirds of Americans thought he should ban gatherings involving more than 10 people. A March poll by the Morning Consult determined that 57% of voters said they would continue to fully adhere to precautions like mask wearing and social distancing, even if state requirements were lifted. A poll taken earlier this week with infections and deaths falling and vaccinations rising found 42% still believe everyone in their area should continue to wear masks outdoors regardless of the Centers for Disease Control's new recommendations that say the fully vaccinated don't have to mask up outside unless in large crowds. 39% said Americans should follow the guidelines. Now, one would think that given their popularity, masks would have been an effective prophylactic against the Chinese virus. But that's not clear at all. We take readers back to a couple of passages with relevant links from an editorial they published earlier this month. Quote, While we acknowledge that covering our faces might slow the spread of coronavirus under some conditions... The Democrats continue to insist that masks should be worn even among the immunized. And they link to a chart using federal and New York Times data that shows just how useless state mask mandates as well as lockdowns have been. It's no outlier. Rational Ground, an organization that was set up to answer the flood of chaotic COVID-19 misinformation, found states where people are told to wear masks actually have a greater spread of COVID-19. Now, the Issues and Insights editorial board concludes by saying, look, the science crowd, of course, walks over any evidence that isn't consistent with its agenda, same as it tramples the Constitution. Today's just another day in which the mindless Democrat media mob of the left has drilled fear into a society that was already losing its nerve and continues to try to break this nation's once stiff spine. Yeah, it's, it's got a little bit of a partisan flavor, but I don't think they're wrong in this case. I think they're, they're quite right about how some people are just going to, to struggle with this because it's the idea that uh, somehow they're giving up control. All right, going to shift gears here. One last commentary. I'm only going to share a few of these. Uh, one of the biggest problems with these claims of, you know, there's systemic racism in law enforcement is that when you use the word systemic, you collectivize the guilt and apply it preemptively to all police, rather than individual officers who might be genuinely racist in their behavior. So Lipton Matthews, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has five myths of systemic racism in policing. And this is a very well-thought-out rebuttal of five very popular lies. Because the big myth right now is that, well, you know, law enforcement's infused with systemic racism and, you know, white officers are trigger happy, especially when dealing with black suspects. So myth number one, blacks are disproportionately killed by the police. Now, he points out here blacks are 13.4% of the population, but they account for 48.9% of murder offenses. That's according to 2019 FBI crime statistics telling us they are more likely to be killed by the police relative to their share of the population is irrelevant. Obviously, if blacks are overrepresented in committing violent crimes, then the likelihood they will be killed by police will be higher as well. But the harsh truth is that blacks are disproportionately perpetrators and victims of violent crime. Furthermore, research reveals that since 2015, police have shot and killed 168 unarmed white people, 135 unarmed black people, and 74 unarmed Hispanic people. Since more unarmed whites were killed by police than unarmed minorities, the logic of activists suggests the real victims of systemic racism are whites. By the way, he has links within 
each one of these to, to back up what he's saying. Myth number two, white officers are trigger happy. Researchers have known for a long time that black officers show a greater tendency to shoot unarmed suspects compared to white officers. And a possible explanation for the aggression of black officers is they may be more often stationed in volatile areas requiring greater use of force. Work by the Crime, Convention, or Crime, Crime Prevention Research Center compared cities where whites are killed to cities where blacks are killed and found the latter exhibit higher rates of violent crime on average. Another issue is that officers are usually, usually situated in communities in which most citizens are of the same race. Hence the findings of Greg Ridgway that black officers are more inclined to employ deadly force, and it could be driven by these factors. Quote, black officers had th- more than three times greater odds of shooting than white officers. This finding runs counter to concerns that white officers are overrepresented among officers using lethal force and is consistent with several previous studies of officer race and police use of force. Now, I'm just going to quickly hit a couple of the last myths here. Myth number three is that police officers tend to use unjustified force. In other words, commentators tend to paint police officers as aggressive. Truth of the matter is, more often than not, police officers, dis- police officers display immense self-control, even in adverse situations. Now, this is not a blanket, you know, pass, therefore they should all be excused. Sometimes there is excessive force used. But generally, there's great restraint shown. Myth number four, depolicing is good for black communities. The answer to that is, well, when politically motivated decisions erode police authority, crime is likely to escalate, not decrease, as some would argue. And myth number five, progressive criminal reform benefits blacks. That is a myth because they fixate on minimizing punishment for offenders, either by decriminalizing certain activities or reducing sentencing. But one bold reformer, David Fryer, admits that by de-emphasizing the plight of victims, progressives are doing a disservice to blacks. Bottom line is this, systemic racism is refuted by the evidence. So instead of promoting senseless claims, He says liberals should steer blacks away from crime, simply encouraging them to distrust the police in the absence of evidence is a recipe for disaster. And I'll have a link to this article by Lipton Matthews in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, you don't have to believe anything I'm sharing with you. You might find it worth considering, though. If it makes sense, then by all means, embrace it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.